0: I am so grateful to be here today. Um, This is actually a very rare appearance of me preaching. I usually don't preach. So why don't I preach? I'm sure my children are really glad that I don't. (laughs) Um, Honestly, part of it is simply logistics. I mean, it's really difficult having two preachers in the house. Uh, It's hard enough having one person. One preacher in the house, can you imagine having two? Um, Also, my husband is a preacher at a very small church, um, and I teach Sunday school there. So when I'm not there, there is no Sunday school. That's one of the reasons I say no to preaching on Sundays. The other part of it is because I simply know too much about preaching, I mean, I know what a sermon is. In the fall, I'm actually going to teach one of my regular graduate seminars, which is called Medieval Sermons. Yeah, we spend a whole semester talking about sermons and talking about what it means to preach. And it doesn't matter, you don't need all that that I just said in the middle on the recording, so it'll all be fine. Um, I, you know, in fact, one of the things, one of the texts that they're going to be reading in the fall is a text by a scholar named Beverly Keensley. And she is a professor emeritus from Harvard University. And she is a world renowned medieval sermon studies scholar. And she wrote a book. Or actually, she edited a book that is very well known that's called The Sermon. Now, academics usually don't spend a lot of time thinking about their titles. Um, But in this book, she opens, she and her co-editor open with a classic definition of a sermon. It's not very long. Don't worry about it. This is what it says, and this is what my students... We're going to spend a whole semester actually really talking about what a start. It sounds exciting, right? Y'all are all excited by this. Um, this is the definition. It's an oral discourse given by a preacher to an audience for the purpose of instruction and exhortation on a topic concerned with faith and morals based on a sacred text. Did you catch the emphasis in that definition? It's an oral discourse given by a preacher to an audience for the purpose of instruction and exhortation on a topic concerned with faith and morals based on a sacred text. Y'all, the emphasis in a sermon... It's not actually who's giving the sermon. The emphasis of a sermon is to instruct and teach about faith. You know, it often seems to me in our white evangelical world that we get this confused. I mean, I think we think a lot more about who's doing the preaching rather than what they are preaching. I can tell you, and Malcolm likes this, from my current research, defining who gets to preach, and y'all can I'll read about this in my next book, often has more to do with tax loss, money, than with spiritual gifting. Some of you may be surprised by that, but then after you think about it, you may be like, huh? That actually makes sense, doesn't it? That we're more concerned about platform and power than preaching the word of God. We spend so much time drawing artificial boundaries around who we think should preach that I think we have forgotten why we need preaching. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 provides us some general reasons for why gathering together as the body of Christ is important. And I think it also tells us about the heart of a sermon. This is what it says, just briefly, and I always read from the um, TNIV. It says, Christ himself granted that some are apostles, prophets, evangelists, preachers, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up into Christ. The purpose of preaching, despite what the Southern Baptist Convention thinks, isn't to define who is in charge. It isn't to clarify boundaries of authority or justify money spent on wooden pulpits, see through acrylic music stands, or famous personalities. Preaching just isn't about the preacher, it's about the message. It's about equipping the saints for the works of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, and for speaking the truth in love. You see, I understand the importance of sermons, which is why I mostly don't preach. (laughs) I'd much rather critique my husband. (laughs) I'm sure he's enjoying his morning off. Now, for those of you who are remembering the beginning of my sermon, I still haven't answered my own question. I'm really good at evasiveness. I've learned that. So why did I say yes to preaching today? I mean, I honestly, I think this is like only my third or fourth time ever. So why did I say yes? Well, one thing, it's y'all Malcolm. It's it's really hard to say no to Malcolm. I know a lot of things about Malcolm, which you can take me out to dinner and I'll tell you. Yeah. Um, But I can also tell you I've had a lot of second thoughts about preaching. Every time I say yes to preaching, I have a lot of second thoughts. You can just ask my husband. I said yes to preaching today, fully understanding the gravity of the task. My eyes were wide open. I said yes to preaching today for the same reason that I said yes to writing The Making of Biblical Womanhood, because I think God has given me something that can help. And in about 20 minutes or so, you can tell me if I'm right. So So let's go to the text. I am so thankful for our reader this morning who read the entire um, chapter of 11 through the beginning of chapter 12 so that I don't have to now do that myself. But I want to highlight a few points. And then I want to talk about the heart Of my message about why I am here and it's because I want you to know why I still believe in the gospel of Jesus so here's four quick points before we talk about why I believe first one is remember I'm much more comfortable in the classroom teaching Sunday school So if this was my Sunday school class, we'd actually start off with a much more, much longer discussion of the background and context of Hebrews. I'm not going to do that. In brief, we don't know who authored Hebrews. But it's pretty much always been considered canonical. There are some good contenders for authorship which make a lot of really fun debate, like Barnabas, Apollos, or Prisca and Aquila. I'll let you guess which one I like the best. But I can tell you that the author isn't Paul. It's just not his voice. If you've read Paul enough, we can recognize his voice. The second thing that I want to highlight is what the focus of chapter 11 and into the beginning of 12 is about. It is not only about faith. It is about the faithful. It is about the people who believed before us, telling us about what it means for us to be faithful to. The author defines faith, I think, in probably the best explanation. Being sure of what we hope for, Hope for and certain of what we do not see. And the author explains the significance of faith that without it, it is impossible to please God. And then we are shown what faith looks like in the lives of believers. There is so much we could take apart as we walk through the lives of these believers we could spend a lot of time focusing on how most of their stories aren't happy. Most of their stories are hard. But the point is that even in the midst of those circumstances, they still believed. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And by his faith, he became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when, he, when called to a place, he would later receive as, in, as, as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction concerning the burial of his bones. You get the idea. All of these believers did not see what they were believing. I often call this chapter the faith walk of fame, right? Third point... And I love this point. This section not only explains to us what faith is, y'all, it reminds us that this is not our home. Just look at verses 13 through 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they were looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to go back. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Every time I read this section, I can almost hear the music of a song by a Christian band called Building 429. Some of you may know it. The song is called "Where I Belong." And I, I won't embarrass my child by singing it. I'll just simply say the lyrics of the chorus says, "All I know is, "I'm not home yet. This is not where I belong. Take this world and give me Jesus. This is not where I belong." And then the final point I want to highlight. I would say it's my favorite section, except for I really like the point that this is not our home. But it's the beginning of chapter 12, first part, verses one through two. The anonymous author of Hebrews reminds us that we, as people of faith, are never alone. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter and pioneer of faith. Really, we could probably just stop here and let the scripture speak for itself. But I want to tell you why this particular scripture passage is so important to me. Now, I don't know how many of you know very much about me. I know some of you do because I've known you for a long time. But some of you may not. Some of you may have heard of the Making of Biblical Womanhood because you were on here when you walked in. Some of you may have never heard about it before then. That's fine. What I can tell you is that writing that book, publishing that book more than two years ago, changed my life. I'm not sure how I feel about it sometimes, honestly. One of the ways that it changed my life, though, is that it opened up the door for me to have conversations with people all over the world. Stop counting. I used to keep a list of all of the podcasts and interviews I had, and then I gave up <laughs> um, because I just couldn't keep up with it anymore. And as I reflect back, in fact, I was just telling Slim last week um, was I sort of, st- I don't do very many podcasts or interviews anymore, but when I do, I try to stack them all together. So last week was like my podcast week, so I, like, stacked them all up last week. Um, but I have learned some things from doing all of these. And I have learned that people often come to me with the same questions. For example, I think the most frequently asked question that I get from people after reading the Making of Biblical Womanhood is, huh, what Bible translation do I use now? (laughs) After they realize that they have been mostly using the ESV. I get that question so often that all of the people who have asked it kind of have blurred together. And it's a pretty easy question to answer also. I point them, usually I say, I don't actually want you to read just one Bible translation. Because all of them are translated by people who carry something to the text. So use a lot of Bible translations. Although I often recommend people maybe not use the ESV, but, you know, part of that's just my own personal prejudice. Um, So that's a question I get all of the time. There's another question, though, that I get not quite as often. But every time it is asked of me, it is very memorable. And it always makes me stop. The first time I heard this question, it was very early on, some shortly around the time the book released, probably in May or June. And it was a woman that I actually met doing another podcast, who asked me to come and do like sort of a very small discussion um, at her bookstore. So it was sort of like a very small book discussion, just between me and her, and then she was airing it at an event she was having at her bookstore. And one thing that I knew about this woman before I walked into the conversation is that she had walked away from the church. She had grown up in conservative evangelicalism. She had grown up at the height of purity culture. She could have been in my youth group, our age difference. And she had been through so much trauma that by the time she got to the end, she walked away. And what she asked me, and you can guess, she wanted to know why I had stayed. Why do you still believe, she said. And I could see her face. She's one of the first people that I think moved me to tears, not because of me, or what I was talking about, because of watching her and realizing the gravity of what this issue has done to people in the church. Her question stopped me in my tracks. It may be the first time I was asked it. It's certainly the first time I remember being asked it. And you know, I could totally see her point. I had just published a book bearing my testimony about the dark underbelly of white evangelical gender theology. For those of you who have read it, it is history. But I weave my testimony through that history. I had shared the trauma experienced by my family after my husband lost his job as youth pastor. And I'd also shared my own personal trauma from years earlier, when I found myself in an abusive relationship with a young man whose family was deeply influenced by the teachings of Bill Gothard. I had talked about the sex abuse scandal rocking the Southern Baptist world, and I had argued that it was rooted in the white evangelical gender theology known as complementarianism, which teaches that women are less than men. And a lot of people get angry with me for saying that. But it's by our fruit we are known. When we teach that simply because of someone's race or skin color or sex that they are unable to hold authority in the same ways as other people we are teaching that they are less and that they are less in the image of god she knew all this because she had just read my book and she knew it because she had lived it herself she walked away and she wanted to know why I didn't. And I had to stop and think. And I've had to stop and think every time someone has asked me that question. You know, given the reality that Christianity in North America today is more easily identified by white Christian nationalism, by sex abuse scandals that protect the perpetrators and shame the survivors by talk show commentators who are caught verbally abusing their pregnant wives on video and defended by their Christian followers. And if you missed that, just go look at Twitter yesterday. By bizarre teachings about sex that sound like pagan fertility worship yet are endorsed by good Christian people at the Gospel Coalition. If you missed that one, God bless you. (laughs) By pastors hatefully harassing a woman like Nelba Marquez Green who speaks out against gun violence because she lost a child at Sandy Hook Elementary She lost her daughter, Anna Grace. This is what she said at the Freedom Rising conference last week. Quote, no one has been meaner to me on Twitter than those men of the PCA church. I don't even know what those letters mean, but no one has been meaner. This woman lives by the mantra of, I know that my Redeemer lives, yet she publicly states that the church has abandoned her. Y'all, is it any wonder that people ask why we still believe? When we are known for mean-spiritedness, hate, racism, sexism, and caring more about our political affiliations than helping the poor, is it any wonder people are walking away? Is it any wonder that a 2021 Pew survey of the religious composition of the United States finds that people walking away from Christianity is rising? Roughly three in 10 adults, 29% today, are religiously unaffiliated. Six percentage points higher than five years ago, and 10 points higher than a decade ago. These people describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular. And do you know where most of that hemorrhaging is coming from? Catholicism's remained relatively steady, it's Protestantism guess which branch of Protestantism it is? We hear all of the scare stories about mainline Protestantism, but y'all, in 2007, 30% of U.S. adults described themselves as evangelical Protestants. In 2021, that percentage was 24%. Where are your six percentage points? There they are. And honestly, can you blame them? I mean, have you stopped to look and see what white evangelical Christianity looks like from the outside. It is absolutely sobering. Maybe some of you have asked this question yourself. Why do I still believe? I can't answer for you. But I can answer for me. And Hebrews 11 through the beginning of 12, lies at the heart of my answer. Let me tell you why I believe. I have two reasons. Do I have pictures up? Okay, good. I'll tell you when I want to move past them. Um, I am a medieval historian, so I don't really go high-tech, y'all. So the first reason I believe is because our faith is bigger than this historical moment. Y'all just think about those that Hebrew that walk of fame through Hebrews 11. Do you know how many centuries it covered? From Cain and Abel to Sarah and Rahab and y'all God always includes women. To David, Samuel and the prophets. Do you know how many people of faith walked during that time? People who knew even less than us, but still believed in the same God that we do. It was reckoned to them as righteousness, is what God says about Abraham. Why do I believe? I believe because Sarah believed. Because she considered the words of God faithful, even though she was past childbearing age. And her faith proved true. I believe because in a patriarchal world that mostly ignores women, God made sure Sarah's faith was remembered. Y'all, it's incredible how often God remembers women in the Bible. I believe because Rahab believed. We could do our whole sermon on Rahab. Because in a world that didn't value women, God remembered the faith of a prostitute And put her in the lineage of Jesus. I believe because I'm a historian. And I know about a 15th century woman named Marjorie Kemp who called out to the same God that I do. At a moment when she feared for her life, she said, Lord, you have brought me to this place for love of you. Be with me and bless me. Words very similar to ones I have said. I believe because I have read the prayer book of a 16th century woman. Read it in the Folger Library, 2018. She prayed to the same God that I do and believed that God would be with her till the end. Listen to her prayer. She said, God, be in my head and in my understanding. Be in my eyes and in my looking. In my mouth and in my speaking, in my heart and in my thinking, God, be in my end and my departing. She believed. She did not see, but she believed. Why do I believe? I believe because I know the faith of the women and men who have come before me. The faith of not only those in the Bible, but the faith of those in history. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. My faith has never walked alone. Which brings me to my second point. Why do I believe? I believe because I think God is bigger than white evangelical Christianity. I cannot emphasize this enough. You know, the beginning of Hebrews 11 starts off with that definition of faith, that we walk by faith, not by sight. We believe what we have not seen. Oftentimes, when we think about that and we look through Hebrews 11, we think about the fact that people believed what God had promised them, but they didn't reach the fulfillment of that promise. They are believing towards the future, things they cannot see. But if you thought about how much is intertwined in that passage about the world that is better than what we have here, the world that is to come, and that section we read ends with the author of Hebrews telling us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfect and of our faith. Y'all, I think so many people are walking away from Christianity today is because we have confused people with God. We have believed people who claim the name of Christians who do not demonstrate the fruit of Christianity, and we have allowed them to stand in the place of our Savior. God calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to not let the things of this world pull us away. I can't help but think about the words of Will Gaffney. I'm actually teaching through one of her texts in my Sunday school class. She's a womanist Hebrew scholar up the road at Bright Divinity School and she says something that the first time she said it in many different ways in a lot of in her writings and every time I read it it stops me The first time I read it was when she was talking about the atrocities committed against women in the Old Testament I mean if you look in the index of her a womanist midrash and you see the word rape (laughs) you see all of the page numbers after it it's quite sobering but when she was asked essentially a similar question why do you believe she reminds that there's a difference between the patriarchy of the biblical text and the god who transcends that text Isn't that what Hebrews is calling us to? The Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus, who is bigger and better than this world. One of the very first times I ever walked through the book of Hebrews, I remember the mantra of my teacher, and it was, Jesus is better. That's what Hebrews is about. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than this world. Along with Will Gaffney, I also can't help think about one of my favorite medieval theologians, a woman who lived through the horror of the Black Death and its aftermath. In one of her most famous revelations, she writes that God showed me a little thing the size of a hazelnut in the palm of my hand. And it was as round as a ball, and I looked at it with my mind's eye, and I thought, what can this be? And the answer came, it is all that is made. I marveled that it could last, for I thought it might have crumbled to nothing. It was so small. And the answer came into my mind, it lasts and ever shall, because God loves it. And all things have been through the love of God. This woman's name was Julian of Norwich. A 15th century woman who realized that God is so much bigger than this world. I have two pictures for you to sum up my sermon. This is really the end. The first, and you can go to the next slide. The first is from the Priscilla Catacombs in Rome, where one of the earliest Christian communities met together for communion, worship, and to bury their dead. There is so much I could talk about from the Priscilla Catacombs. You're going to have to wait for my book. Um, the, but what I, I think what struck me the most as I walked through just that small part that you're allowed to on the tour, was how the images on the ancient walls showed me that what I believe about God to be true today is what my brothers and sisters in Christ believed in 3rd century Rome. Y'all, our faith is deep, and it is a whole lot bigger than this particular historical moment. The second image, you can move to it, is from a pilgrimage I took with three graduate students to the Anchorage of Julian of Norwich, the woman whose words I just read. It is mostly reconstructed today as the church was bombed during an air raid, but it is the same space in which a late medieval woman learned that the God who made the universe is the same God who made the hazelnut. And that God is so much bigger than we have yet imagined. Why do I believe, y'all? I believe because I know, like Noah and Rahab, that we have not yet received what was promised. This world will pass. This moment of white evangelicalism will pass. But God never will. God has something better for us. And it is time that we fix our eyes on Jesus. If you will bow with me.